Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University, podcasting today from Stanford University's Hoover Institution. My guest today is Bruce Buena de Mesquita, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Silver Professor of Politics at New York University. Bruce has written and researched widely in the area of international relations and political economy. He is one of the most creative political scientists of his generation. His most recent book is The Logic of Political Survival with Alastair Smith, Randolph Severson, and James Morrow, published by MIT Press in 2003, and is the author of the forthcoming book, which will be published by the University of Michigan, Strategies of Campaigning, that he's written with Condoleezza Rice, Kyron Skinner, and Serhi Kudelia. Bruce, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Bruce, I want to talk to you today about The Logic of Political Survival, your most recent book, uh, which has some fascinating theories uh, about leadership and public policy, growth, taxation, rather remarkable set of implications drawn out from a, a very sophisticated mathematical theory, but that theory can be explained in common sense English, I bet, anyway. Can you give that a shot for us? In, uh... Yeah, I can do that. It is, by the way, not my most recent book. I, I have a, a third edition of Principles of International Politics in between, but be that as it may. Uh, yeah, the theory starts from the perspective that we shouldn't talk about uh, categorical regime types like democracy, monarchy, autocracy, but rather we should think of all organizations, not just governments, but all organizations as falling on two institutional dimensions, one that my co-authors and I call the selectorate. The selectorate are the set of people who have at least a nominal say in choosing who will lead them. So in a democracy, uh, they are the electorate. Uh, in a monarchy, they are the people in the court, the aristocracy. In a military junta, they may be a group of military officers. Uh, in a rigged election autocracy, they may be a group of military officers and civil servants, and they might indeed be all the citizens if they have uh, universal suffrage, but rigged. The, there's a subset of the selectorate that we call the winning coalition. These are the people whose support is essential to keep the incumbent in office. So, for example, in a directly elected presidential system, which the United States does not have, it takes about... 50 we, have, we have that thing called, what's it, the, the Electoral, Electoral College, College, which yeah. I'm a big fan of, by the way. I don't mean to make fun of it with that tone of voice. It's, it's an interesting institution. It means that if you place the votes just right in the United States, you can control the House, the Senate, and the presidency currently with about 19% of the vote. That is, 81% of the voters could vote one way, and 19% would prevail. For Meaning, say, at the presidential level, you could lose certain states with zero votes, as long as you won by one vote, exactly. the, the handful of states necessary to get to the Precisely. minimum level. In, in the British parliamentary system, you need a minimum of 25%. Uh, each member, the prime minister needs half the members of parliament, each of whom needs half the voters in his or her district. Uh, in a directly elected presidential system, you need about 51%. In a in many PR systems, you can win with as little PR. a proportional representation. You can win with as little as about 10%. And in some of the more interesting rigged systems of the world, like uh, Kim Jong-il's North Korea, you can win with about the support of one every ten, of every 10,000 people, if, you happen, if they happen to be the generals. And it's an important difference in those two examples 
that those generals are identifiable. The 19% in the American case you gave isn't really the firm number because you can't really pick the 19%, but in North Korea you can. Absolutely, yes. In, in, a, in an electoral system, the, uh, the voters are essentially anonymous. And in these other types of systems, uh, in aristocracies and military juntas and the like, they are not anonymous. They, you know that it's drawn from a particular named set of people. Uh, that's a very important uh, difference. So when you have a government that depends on a small coalition drawn from a large pool of people, you get very different forms of governance than you do when it's drawn from a large, when the coalition is drawn, is large and is drawn from a large pool uh, or from a small pool. Why is that? Well, what do governments do? Basically, in this theory, uh, leaders do three things. They pick a tax rate with which they generate revenue. That, of course, affects how much labor people engage in and how much leisure they engage in. With the tax revenue, they allocate money to keep the members of their coalition loyal so that they don't defect and select somebody else to be the leader. They keep them loyal by providing public goods that benefit everybody in the society, uh, national defense, uh, infrastructure, education, so forth. And they provide private goods that benefit the members of their coalition, in essence, their cronies. That might be uh, opportunities to engage in corrupt practices. It might be uh, special compensation, special stores as they had in the Soviet Union. Uh, in the case of a democratic-type polity like the United States, we might notice that when the Democrats are in office, they attempt to steer tax policy towards voters who happen to vote Democrat, relatively less well-off. And when the Republicans are in power, they try to steer tax policy towards relatively wealthy uh, taxpayers who, as it turns out, tend to vote Republican. These, are, these shifts in the tax structure are private benefits. They also have public consequences, but they are private benefits to their constituents. You're, you're, by the way, I just want to interrupt you. This can be the First time I say this, I may say it many times, or I may uh, hold back, but in many ways, this is a, a theory of cynicism uh, about the political process. It's a, well, I shouldn't say that, a hard-nosed theory. It is a cynical theory. I have uh, no problem with that. <laughs> it is a cynical theory of politics. It starts from the presumption that what motivates all people who pursue political office is gaining and maintaining themselves in power. They want to survive politically, hence the name of the book, The Logic of Political Survival. Now, I couldn't agree with that more as a working hypothesis of how people in office behave, but it's remarkable in America that that's, for some people, that's a controversial idea. It's controversial because people have um, not really reflected on it. And there's a lot of romanticism about politics. a lot of romanticism. Uh, and people, even after they hear somebody say, well, politics is about surviving in office, so what? They don't really think about what does that mean. So it means, for example, that the idea of a national interest has to be put aside because politicians will pursue, if, if by national interest we mean what, what is perceived to be good for the bulk of the people, politicians will pursue the national interest if it happens to coincide with their interest in staying in office. If it doesn't happen to coincide, then they will do the things that are in their interest. So you know, when we look at a Kim Jong-il in North Korea, or we look at the uh, Saddam Hussein when he was running Iraq, 
surely nobody thinks that these guys really thought they were doing what was good for their average citizen. They understood that they were doing what was good for them, and they managed to keep their jobs for a very long time, much longer than Democratic leaders do. So how does this work? When a coalition is small, the leader depends only on a few people, it's efficient to use corruption, rent-seeking, bribery, and so forth to stay in power. Even if the person is well-intentioned, if they spend a lot on public goods that they need to be spending on private rewards to the coalition, members of the coalition will defect to somebody else who will pay them more. So they don't stay in power. They can't choose on the demand side. They can on the supply side. I'll get to that in a moment. On the demand side of satisfying the coalition's demands, they can't choose to do good public policy and keep their jobs. If, on the other hand, you rule based on a very large coalition, no matter how avarice you are, no matter how uncivic-minded you are, if you want to keep your job, you have to satisfy a large number of people. And it's very difficult to do that through bribery. So private goods give way to public goods provision, to good public policy, the larger the coalition that you depend on. Not out of civic-mindedness, but because that's the efficient way to keep your job. When the winning coalition is a big part, a big percentage of the selectorate, then if you're in the winning coalition now, first of all, when the coalition is large, you're mostly getting public goods, so there's not a great deal of value in being in the winning coalition over not being in it, because everybody gets the benefits of public goods. And if the ratio of winning coalition to selectorate is large, there's not much risk that if you switch to another candidate that you'll be left out, because the candidate needs a lot of people. But especially when it's anonymous. Especially when it's anonymous. Right. But if you depend on a small winning coalition drawn from a big selectorate, the political system that was invented by Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, this was his great genius, by the way, to have a rigged electoral system. Everybody knew what the outcome would be. You have to ask yourself, well, why did they think this was a good thing? Why did they go through the charade? Everybody had a very small chance I emphasize very small, but not zero chance, of getting into a winning coalition, becoming a member of the Communist Party, gaining the benefits of party membership, access to special stores, and so forth. An apartment. An apartment. A car now and then. Yeah, exactly. Eventually. Whereas under sausage, instead of just potatoes. Whereas under the Tsarist government, unless you were basically a Romanov, you had no chance of getting those goodies. So it was an improvement for them. For the, for the, for the average, average citizen. Explain that again. Because they had a, a non-zero chance that they could get access to some goodies. And the people who actually got the goodies were a larger group, at least. Yes. In, In fact, you know, the Communist Party was, was almost by statute 10% of the population. And so you knew you had a prospect. And if you look at who the leaders of the Soviet Union were, these were people drawn from all walks of life, from all over the country and so forth. At birth, you could have said, as you could say in the United States, almost anybody could grow up to be general secretary of the Communist Party. Living the Soviet dream. Living the what Soviet dream. What a beautiful dream. thing. On the other hand, the, the rigged system has great virtues for the leader, much greater than for the citizens. So when the coalition is very small... They're getting the concentrated private rewards, they, the members of the coalition. Right. So it's valuable to be in the coalition. And because the coalition is small relative to the pool of people who could be drawn into it, that is the selectorate, 
Everybody in the coalition knows that if they switch horses, they become loyal to a different candidate for general secretary, there's a high probability that they won't be needed by that person, and they'll be dropped if that person comes to power, and they will lose the benefits of all these goodies that they're getting. Explain that again. So, the pool of people that the... I'm, let, I'm on the inside. You're on the I'm, inside. I'm, on the, I'm a member of the Communist Party. I have a chance to rise within the hierarchy. I'm living well. I've got access to, to things that the general citizenry and the rest of the people don't have. There is a chance that an alternative despot will come to power, and I might support that person if I thought that the goodies I would get from that person would be sufficiently large. Right. There's some uncertainty, right? That's the key. There so is uncertainty. So what's the implication so there again? The, the uncertainty is that once this person has come to power... And the challenger? The, the challenger, and has learned about the various people who could make up his winning coalition... He's going to choose the ones who are inclined to be most loyal and pay them off because that, it's going to be cheaper. So, for example, when Gorbachev came to power, he replaced something like 95% of the membership of the Politburo within a year, putting in his guys, the guys who were going to be loyal to him. Now, in order for him to come to power, many people who had been in the Politburo, whom he dropped, <laughs> had to take had a chance. To have taken right. that chance. But they didn't make the cut, it turned out. And they out. didn't make the cut. And so they lost the benefits. Now, what that means is that the incumbent leader has fiercely loyal coalition members when the coalition is very small. In Gorbachev's case, of course, we had a dead leader. The leader was not being deposed. He was filling an, a vacant position. They had, to, they had to appoint somebody. The Members of the coalition are getting a lot of goodies, and there's this big risk that they won't make the cut if they switch to somebody else, that he, he'll shuffle the cabinet, not need them, right. and they'll be cut off from these goodies. So as a result, they're very loyal to the incumbent. Because they are loyal, and they're getting these private goods, because they are loyal to the incumbent, the incumbent doesn't have to spend as much as if they weren't loyal to keep them happy. As much per person or as much in total? As much per person. So... When the coalition is large, and so the risk of defecting to another guy, that is, the risk of losing the goodies, is not, and they're not very many goodies, is not that high, the members of the coalition aren't terribly loyal to the incumbent. So the incumbent has to spend more of the revenue he or she gets the price to satisfy the demands of the coalition. Mm -hmm. When the coalition is small, while each individual is getting much more than they would get in a big coalition system, the leader in the aggregate doesn't have to spend as much, so the individuals per capita are doing better, but the total spending can go down because he only has to spend enough for them to be at least as well off as they think they would be if they switched to a rival. And since there's a high probability that they won't be needed by the rival, they don't have a very good chance, they don't have, have a good high bargaining. expectation, weak bargaining position. So the leader doesn't have to spend as much. Since the leader doesn't have to spend as much on the coalition, the leader has more discretionary resources to use however the leader wants. Now, this might be on civic-minded pet projects. The problem with, with so, and that would be on the supply side as opposed to the demand being produced by the coalition. The problem with having public policy driven by the supply-oriented discretion of the incumbent leader is some incumbents 
Lee Kuan Yew comes to mind, have very good ideas about how to spend money to produce a more prosperous society. Most don't. Many <laughs> have very bad ideas. Yeah. So, you know, Mao Zedong had ideas. The Great Leap Forward, which was a great leap back. Steel foundries in everybody's backyard. Exactly. Yeah. All these sorts of things. So you get extremely, in, in this theory and in reality, for example, when we look at economic growth, you get extremely high variance, variation in growth rates from year to year in societies where the leader has a lot of discretion, like rigged election autocracies. And you get much lower variation in growth rates in more democratic countries, countries that rely on a big coalition, because the leader has very little discretion about how to spend money. They're greatly constrained by the demands of the coalition because they have to keep the coalition loyal. So let me, let me summarize, if I could, to boil it down. In, in this uh, slightly cynical view of the world, uh, leaders extract resources from the general body politic the population at large, they take those resources and then spend them in order to keep themselves in office. Some of that spending goes toward things that benefit everybody, infrastructure, uh, wise policies that, that lead to growth, but a large chunk of it, how large depends on the nature of the winning coalition and the size of it relative to the selectorate, the body uh, that does has political influence. Some chunk there is going to be spent on those folks with the remainder kept for the discretion of the leader to be spent on these perhaps pet projects or simply Swiss bank accounts. Yeah. yeah they're, okay. they're very good for Swiss bankers. So this provides the opportunity for kleptocracy, for stealing from the state. Pure exploitation of, Pure the, exploitation. of the people. Well, this, this structure turns out to have a lot of interesting consequences. Some I've mentioned, the effects on growth, effects on uh, corruption and kleptocracy. But there are, there are many others. For example, the tax rate that is induced by a large coalition system is low. Because it's not a lot of logic to having people produce income to give to the state, the state will then turn around and give back to them in the form of public goods. So that's only going to be done on those public goods that the market can't take care of. When what we would call good public policy. Good public policy. Ideally. When the coalition gets to be very small, however, the tax rates tend to be high because the leaders need to extract money in order to bribe their cronies who are in the coalition. And so they tend to suppress the incentive of people to engage in labor. And so we get these stereotypical images uh, of the lazy Mexican taking a siesta during the uh, 1920s when Mexico had a very poor government. And we no longer have that image of Mexicans now that they have a more democratic government because people work harder. They work harder not because they were lazy then and they're not lazy now, but because then they didn't keep the fruits of their labor and now they do keep the fruits. Of and now labor. we have the lazy uh, Frenchman who, because of high taxes in France, and labor regulations finds it hard to find work, and then when work is found, finds it unproductive to spend too much time at it. And can't be fired, and enjoys very much having long vacations and so forth. Exactly. So we wouldn't want to conclude from that anything about the character of people who live in France or Mexico, but rather the incentives they face. Yes. Uh, Precisely. Very much the economist's worldview. Precisely so. Uh, this has other implications. It has foreign policy implications, some of which people might find troubling. For example, foreign aid. 
people would like to believe that foreign aid is a way to help poor people. I would like to believe that foreign aid is a way to help poor it, people. It's a lovely thought. How's it working, by the way? Uh, not so well. doesn't seem to be consistent not, with that hypothesis. Not so well. So what, what we, if we think about foreign aid, we will see that there are four sets of people who are affected by foreign aid. And three of those four sets benefit from foreign aid, and one set suffers terribly from it. There's a donor government, the leader of the donor country. There are the constituents, the winning coalition of the donor. There are the recipient government leaders, and there are the recipient citizens. Okay. Now, as it turns out, the larger the winning coalition a country has, the more democratic in, in, in sort of casual terms, the more likely the country is to give foreign aid. The smaller the coalition, the, the more autocratic the government, the more likely it is to get foreign aid. But conditional on getting aid, the bigger the coalition of the recipient country's government, the more aid they will get. So the poorest countries with the worst governments are, most, are not most likely to get aid. Rather, it is the worst governments that make them likely, not their poverty. Let's say that that's a fascinating point, so let's make sure that it's, it's clear. Uh, we like the idea of thinking that, well, there's a correlation between how poor a nation is and how much we give. We think the poorer you are, the higher the chance you'd get money and the more you'd get. Well, there is a correlation, unfortunately. I understand. It's the opposite. Yeah, so tell us about it again. Okay, so first, the relationship between the likelihood of getting aid and the amount of aid is inverse. That is, the more likely you are to get aid, the less aid you are likely to get. If you get it. If you get it. And the wealthier you are, the less aid you are like the, the less likely you are to get aid because in order to buy policy concessions from you it will be expensive. So poor countries are more likely to get aid but they're likely to get very little aid. Because they have little to offer the be donor company because country? they can be bought cheaply. Uh -huh. Uh, so every country has something to offer. The thing they have to offer is, and this is why foreign aid is a very, 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 very small part of the budget. It's contrary to popular belief. The popular belief is it's 20, 30 percent of U.S. spending. Uh, yes. It's, but it's not quite that large. Not quite that yeah. large. No. Uh, not close. It's, it's in the couple of percent neighborhood. Foreign aid, why do you give foreign aid? Well, at the margin, you would like countries to pursue policies that your constituents like. We would like the Egyptians to be... We being American. We being American. We would like the Egyptians to be friendly towards American policies. We give Egypt a lot of aid. I'll come back to that. We would like uh, Pakistan to pursue and punish terrorists. We give them aid. Uh, during the Cold War, we gave Mobutu Sese Seko in what was then Zaire, I believe this week it's the Democratic People's something or other of the Congo, um, we gave him aid. Now, he was a very, very, very nasty man, and so people wonder, why are we giving him aid? Well, he was willing to be anti-Soviet if we gave him aid, and we wanted countries to be anti-Soviet. Okay, so the donor wants at the margin to buy policy concessions. Now, if you want to change the, a country's economy, the amount of aid we give are trivial. 
but if you want to buy a leader's loyalty by helping him buy his constituents, the amount of aid we give turns out not to be trivial. It turns out to have a profound effect on the probability that a leader survives in office. The average amount of aid per capita that a country receives is increases the likelihood that their leader will be in office another year by about 30 30 to 40 percent. Enormous. Wow. An enormous. And they take that aid, of course, and dole it out to the poor people in their country. Uh, well, no, not no? so much. Oh. No, I, I know you're what shocked they, to hear this. What do they do with so, it? So they make a deal. We give them aid in exchange for policy concessions. They can afford to give us the policy concessions because they don't rule on the basis of public goods, good public policy, because they're not chosen by the people. They're chosen or maintained by a small coalition. They need money to keep their cronies loyal. We call that money foreign aid. We give them that money, they give the bulk of it to their cronies. In exchange, we get policy concessions. So the leader of the donor country benefits because at the margin has made some constituents happy and therefore is more likely to be retained in office. The constituents of the donor benefit because at the margin they've gotten policies they like that they otherwise wouldn't have had. The leader of the recipient country benefits because he's gotten money with which to help to sustain himself in office, he being a small coalition leader. Alas, how he does that, how he gets the most money, is by making policy concessions that are really politically unpalatable in his society. And that means that the citizens of the recipient country are the ones who are most harmed by aid. So it's not terribly surprising that in countries where the United States gives aid, it is very common for the American government to be hated by the people. And yet it is also not uncommon for those same people who hate the United States to wish that they lived here because we provide lots of public goods. Their society does not provide public goods. We are helping their leader not to provide public goods, and we are helping their leader to survive in office. And that's not because we're doing something evil. That's because our leaders in the United States, like leaders in any democratic country, are doing what benefits the people who chose them to lead, which is to produce policies that benefit their citizens. That's their job. And we have a lot to talk about there. Yes. But I, I want to stop and, and digress and, or go back to an earlier point you made because I think it's so profound, so misunderstood, which is the so-called national interest. What you've just said is, look, this isn't, Attractive, perhaps, uh, but it's not. There's not anything particularly irrational about it. There may not be anything wrong about it. It's the way the world works. That even in a democracy, there are some people who have more political influence than others. They have a larger say than others, and we should not be surprised at policies that enhance their well-being. Okay, that's that's one thing you're saying. But I I, I just want to emphasize your point you made earlier. We romanticize democracy, and it is better on many dimensions, as we've already talked about, than other forms of government, as Churchill uh, pointed out, and others agree with. It's, it's better, but we shouldn't over-romanticize it. What you've just said is that a leader of a democratic country is no different in, in motivation and in underlying influence than other people, but the political system constrains the leader in a democracy to serve a relatively large group of people. Having said that, some of those folks are going to get more goodies than others. That's that's the way I take what you've said. So 
we shouldn't romanticize a democracy. Well, it does the will of the people. There is no will of the people. We have diverse interests, and some political processes are going to serve smaller or larger groups depending on the constraints. That's what I hear you saying. That is precisely correct. Very well summarized. Leaders in this view of the world everywhere are doing what is good for them, subject to their being constrained by the incentives to hold office and the environment in which they operate. In a democratic country, they are compelled to behave relatively well, and in an autocratic country, they are compelled to behave relatively badly. They are compelled. They may wish to be good people. And so when we look around the world and we see that the democratic countries, with few exceptions, are prosperous, their citizens have long life expectancies, they live high-quality lives, we shouldn't think that they were just darn lucky that they happened to keep drawing relatively capable leaders. Rather, we should understand that every place is drawing leaders who are capable about maintaining themselves in office, and it just happens to be the case that under different institutional arrangements, that creates different behavior. Every democratic leader, in my view, if given his or her druthers, unconstrained, free to choose, to borrow from Milton Friedman, would choose Lenin's rigged electoral system. Ooh, the ultimate cynicism. Because that is the political arrangement that maximizes the probability of keeping your job. If you look at dictators, you look at despots, it happens they face a very high risk of being turned out of office in their first year, year and a half, when they've not yet persuaded their cronies that they can continue to deliver benefits to them. Once they have demonstrated that they can do that, once they've persuaded their coalition... And I assume learned some of the ropes of how to exactly they, channel the goodies to they, the... They've to learned the, how to work the system. Once they get past that first year, year and a half, the vast majority of autocratic leaders keep their jobs until they die in their sleep. And the exceptions to that are leaders who, where it has been learned, which is why they keep the secret, leaders where it has been learned that they have a terminal illness. This is what happened to the Shah. It was learned that he had cancer. This is what happened to Mobutu Sese Seko. It was learned that he had cancer. This is what happened to Ferdinand Marcos. It was learned that he had advanced stages of lupus. Once that happens... Sorry? Once that happens. Once that happens, these guys are in deep trouble because the people who are, the coalition who is depending on them to be the source of the goodies now realize they better find another source. Until that moment arises, these guys, if they made it past the first year or so, they keep their job. So the average dictator stays in power almost three times longer than the average Democrat. And if they made it past the first year and a half, they stay in power 20, 30 years. And the, the sort of, I think, casual view of that is, well, of course they stay in power. They're a dictator. But, of course, many dictators fall out of power because they don't learn how to use the system quickly enough. Also, or, or this information comes out that they've got cancer. They still have control. They're still the dictator. Yeah. And yet, somehow, the incentives of that coalition change to support alternatives who are going to deliver more uh, And there's more there than that. So when people say, well, of course they keep their jobs, they're dictators, they have the guns. Excuse me, the President of the United States controls many more guns, but the President of the United States, Max, is going to have eight years, and he knows darn well that 
eight years and a day more isn't going to happen. Can't keep himself in office past January the 20th of the relevant year. So it's not having the guns, it's how you can use the guns. Why can it, an autocrat use the small coalition leader, use the guns to keep himself in power, and the large coalition leader can't? The small coalition leader is supported by a group of people who are getting paid off very handsomely. Let me give you some numbers by way of example. It is estimated that Kim Jong-il needs the support of between 250 and 2,500 people in North Korea out of 20 million approximately to keep himself in power. Oh, and one, just as a footnote, you said the dictator has the guns. The dictator actually has no guns. Yes. It, the cr dictator's cronies have the guns. cronies have the guns. <laughs> it is estimated that Kim Jong-il needs $1.2 billion a year to keep himself in office. Let's assume his coalition is the high end of what I said, 250 to 2,500. Let's assume it's 2,500. Per capita income in North Korea is approximately $600. Per year. Per year. Pitiful. 1.2 billion divided. This is, so there, there's a gross national product of about 12 billion. 1.2 billion, 10%. Which is a relatively low number. I mean, in the United States, the government uses 25% of gross product. 1.2 billion divided among 2,500 cronies Sweet. is a half a million ahead. When is that more than $600? That, that was that the maybe more I than, think it's more than $600. Now we can figure that most of those 2,500 are not getting a half a million. They're maybe only getting five or ten thousand, ten times <laughs> per capita yeah. income, and a few are getting millions. But you can see how fiercely loyal. A person would be, if they're getting 6000 a year and per capita income is 600 and some of them are getting millions, and they would be willing to engage in very unpleasant behavior to protect that. And so the dictator, because of the small coalition, not because he's a dictator, but because of the small coalition, can use force to oppress anybody they suspect of opposing them. Make an observation in that regard. People take a certain amount of uh, optimism out of economic growth in China and so right. forth. Things are getting better. It seems to be a relaxation of some uh, repression. There's certainly more economic freedom. Yes. So uh, I did a paper with a colleague, George Downs, that was in Foreign Affairs last year, uh, in which we discussed what we called sustainable autocracy. And the basic thrust of that paper was to say, that there's a new breed of autocrats who have figured out that you can keep yourself in power essentially indefinitely without needing the garrison state. How do you do this? So we're going to divide public goods into two categories. A category I'm going to call standard goods. Basic primary education, but not much higher than primary education. Literacy, basically. Basic health care, uh, basic clean drinking water, shelter, those sorts Roads. of things roads, but not the other type of public goods I'm going to call coordination goods, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, free speech, and so forth. Now, as it turns out, it is much cheaper to have a free press than a censored press. You don't have to spend any money to have a free press. It is much cheaper to allow freedom of assembly than to prevent people from assembling. You have to amass a police force for the purpose of making sure people don't come together. It's a difficult thing. It's costly. But as it turns out, having 
basic education, but not more because higher levels of education make it easy for people to coordinate. Having basic education, basic health care, and so forth, turns out not to put the leader's survival in office at risk, and at the margin may actually be beneficial to the survival and make people fat and happy. These coordination goods, freedom of assembly, free press, and so forth, hugely, hugely increase the probability that the leader will be deposed. If you have free assembly, the probability that a leader will be in his or her position a year later, if they're not a democracy, the probability decreases by 86% if they make the mistake of allowing people to assemble. So, of course, they don't make this mistake. Yeah, they pay attention. Yeah. They, so, they, they know the result. They haven't run the regression, but they've got a, an exactly. intuition They've got it. a good intuition. It's like the Milton Friedman thing where the, you know, the truck driver is going around the corner. He doesn't know the physics of a wet road in a rainy night, but he acts as if he does. He acts yeah. as if he does. <laughs> These guys have figured out, hmm... If I let these folks get together, if I let them be well-informed, if I let them know what the government is doing, I'm going to be in trouble. I can make them better off economically and so forth without doing that. And I can, by that mechanism, postpone the risk that I'm going to be kicked out. And so this new breed of autocrats, the Chinese pioneers in it, Lee Kuan Yew was a pioneer in it in Singapore, and unfortunately Vladimir Putin is being a pioneer in Russia, have found a way to sustain themselves without moving in a more freedom-oriented direction. And if we look at uh, Cuba, which is my favorite example, it is very common for people to point to the good health care and so forth in Cuba. Well, yes, it's also true that... And literacy, the two things you, you wrote, the other thing you mentioned. It's also true that when Fidel Castro... Uh, you know, today, Fidel Castro is the longest-serving leader in the world. He's been in office for 46 years. I doubt very much that he wakes up in the morning and thinks to himself, you know, there's so many things that I can still do for Cuba that I've not had a chance to do in the last 46 years. I am so much better qualified to run this country than anybody else. I don't think he really believes that, but he does like his job. It's much better than the rationing that the average Cuban has to live under. So these guys have figured out how to keep themselves in office while avoiding democracy. I want to come back to the uh, North Korea example because uh, it's so vivid. You gave an example where uh, a small group of, what, 250 to 2,500 was other guess. Mm -hmm. So it's a big range, but it turns out it doesn't matter how that range is. It's accurate enough. It's accurate enough. It's a small group relative to the society at large. And those folks are living uh, in a lovely way, and the average person's living very badly. Why wouldn't the leader of North Korea, his name please? Kim Jong-il. Thank you. Why wouldn't he pursue better economic policies and have more to give away? If he's extracting resources... He's a dictator. He's in charge. He's able, we know, he may not be a, a world-class, historically world-class Hall of Fame dictator, but he's still a successful dictator in that he's able to exploit the body politic, his average citizens, and channel those goodies to this, this core group of, of friends of his that keep him in power. Why wouldn't he let the economy grow bigger? Why wouldn't he pursue better economic policies for the society at large, and have more to extract. 
you know, one argument, well, he just doesn't realize it. I, I find that hard to believe. It's a common argument. You hear it in the United States all the time. It makes me laugh. It is you a know, silly argument. It's a childish. don't understand <laughs> economics 101 or yeah. can't find somebody to advise them. Or wouldn't try it. You've got 46 years to experiment yeah. in the case of Castro. So there must be, a, I assume you have an argument for why those folks pursue such crummy economic policies when it seems to be in their self-interest to be a better uh, person at the helm when so-called running the, when doing this thing called running the economy. So it is not bad for them to have economic growth. It is better for them to have a corrupt system. Let me give you an example out of the logical political survival. If you run a small coalition political system like Kim Jong-il does, a, a petty dictatorship, and you produce an average annual economic growth rate of 6%, it's a high growth rate, you sustain that for a long time. The probability that you have a 50% chance of losing your job the next year isn't reached until you've been in office for 12 years. Explain. Give me a moment, I'll come okay. back to it. That's an I, empirical I, that's finding. A, that's I an assume. empirical finding, right. If instead of a 6% growth rate, you produce a large black market premium on your currency, and you control who has access to the black market, you, have, you don't reach the 50% probability of losing your job. Remember, it was 12% if you were producing 6%. No, 12 years if 6% growth. It's 25 years. Better with a high uh, corruption rate, a high, a high black market uh, premium on the currency. It's better. So growth is a good strategy. Corruption is a better strategy. Unfortunately, corruption and growth don't often go well together. People are reluctant to invest in places where the society is corrupt because they don't know that they will get to benefit from what they've produced. China has worked to some degree on correcting that. It's still a very corrupt society. North Korea is an extraordinarily corrupt society. And unlike China, where the Communist Party consists of around 6, 7, 8% of the population, North Korea, the core group, it's really small. And when it's really small, it's basically generals. You don't need growth out of 20 million people at $600 a head, $12 billion. There is plenty of money for the handful of important generals so and what, civil servants. So why take a chance of, oh, say, opening why the trade? Why take a risk? It's other... the efficient way to keep your job. The mistake that people make, and, and, and I know that you are not making this mistake, but you're signaling your audience about it, is they make the leap that surely leaders want to do what's good for the country. Leaders want to do what's good for them. Growth is good for the country. Growth could be good for them. It turns out it's not as good for them as corruption. Not yeah. their personal corruption necessarily, but the, the opportunity of their, of their cronies to be corrupt if they want to keep their jobs. So if you start from the view they want to keep their jobs, you wind up with the conclusion, hmm, you know, allowing the corrupt system works really well for them. They're going to do it. Deeply depressing, but... Deeply depressing, but it's the way the world works. It's the way the world works. I'm not making a normative statement here. I'm not saying this is the way I would like the world to be. I'm, this is the way the world is. Uh, tell us about uh, King Leopold, which is a fascinating example in the book. Leopold II was the king of Belgium from 1869 until his death in 1909. 
Well, uh, how long? 1869 till 1909. 40 years. 40 years. It was a good good run. run. Yeah. yeah. Leopold was a constitutional monarch in a period when constitutional monarchy was just emerging. So he had a great deal of power. He had the real power to appoint and depose the prime minister. And there was an electoral multi-party competitive system for the for choosing the legislature and the prime minister had to come out of the legislature. But he was the king. He was the king. And I've got to ask a clarifying question. Uh, well, isn't he the king till he dies? I mean, isn't that what kings... Yes, yes, king so till he, he dies. He's, so why does, what, how does the logic of political survival, your, your theory and title of your book, have anything to do with this? I mean, he's just, as well, long as he's alive, he's the king. I hate to digress from Leopold, but I'm going to digress a little bit. So we might ask ourselves, why does constitutional monarchy exist? Mm. Why does Britain have a queen... Well, we all know the queen has no real power. TV ratings, isn't it? Uh, I believe it is TV ratings. <laughs> um, but there is, when you go back into the history of the emergence of constitutional monarchy... Before TV, I think, you, actually. Before TV, you, even before radio, you get, as it turns out, a rather nice answer. Monarchs had a lot of private goods, tons of goodies. And they were increasingly running into the problem. There was a very competitive office. We think of monarchy as hereditary. Well, from the Middle Ages forward until constitutional monarchy, over 50% of monarchic successions were contested. It turns out that... Contested how? There were multiple candidates with seemingly legitimate claims. I give you an example, a famous example. In 1199, Richard the Lionhearted died. And there was, therefore, the need for a successor. There were several people with legitimate claims to the English crown based on heredity. There was John Lackland, who became King John. John was the eldest surviving son of Henry II. Richard and John, Richard the Lionheart and John, were both sons of Henry II, who had died. And then Richard became king, and then Richard died. So John was the eldest surviving son of Henry II. Geoffrey had a son. Geoffrey was the, was the deceased eldest son of Henry II. His son, Arthur, claimed the crown as the eldest son of the eldest son of Henry II. Eleanor of Aquitaine had a claim. She was the surviving widow of Henry II. So uh, there was another claimant who's escaping my mind at the moment. So there were several claimants to the crown. The, to get the crown, you needed to have a majority of the powerful barons behind you. You didn't have to have a majority of the barons. You had to have a majority of, what, of the knights supported by knights' fees of the barons. John had the Earl of Gloucester, how shall I put this delicately, murder Arthur, which diminished his... Arthur's chances went down after being dead. And Eleanor made clear that she had no interest. (laughs) She was no fool. And so John became king. It was contested. Arthur was quite eager until his sudden demise. Now, just a coincidence, no doubt, but um, once you're king, you then retain the kingship until death. Now, I guess... 
there's this additional possibility that death is is what we would call endogenous. Exactly. Is that is that the issue here? That is the issue. So King, I want to go back to King Leopold because I don't want to forget. Yes. King yes. Leopold, 1869 to 1909, this great 40-year run. I assume he dies a natural death in 1909. Yes. Uh, we we presume, but in between there, he could have been. De- what what was at risk? What, okay, in what he, sense was in what sense was his power at risk in so the 40-year run? He could have been deposed. There were other people who would have liked the crown, who had claims on the crown. It was not uncommon through history for monarchs to be assassinated or to contract sudden stomach ailments. This is why they had tasters. Mm -hmm. There were risks in the business. Uh, There's a wonderful story by Italo Calvino uh, in which he talks about, he starts the story, it's a short story, He starts it by talking about a fellow who has spent his life aspiring to be king and to knock off the person who is on the throne. And now he is the king, and he realizes the terrible mistake he has made because he can never leave the throne to do anything because there is always somebody who wants to take it from him. And he realizes that one day somebody will come up from behind, and just as he knocked off the prior king, so will happen to him. This is a common risk. It was not uncommon for kings to meet unhappy ends uh, prior to nature taking its course. But I asked this about <laughs> King Leopold because we jokingly said at the start of this this uh, discussion of, of the man that, that he had a good run for yeah. 40 years. So the good run partly consists of good health, long enough to live to be uh, whatever he was in 1909. But it's more than that. Presumably your claim is is that while king, he made enough people happy to sustain his kingship uh, from the threat of assassination and... Or deposition, or simply getting making it more of a constitutional monarchy of the sort that England had. Political change could come along. Yes, power. absolutely. Okay. So, uh, how, Le- do you do? how do you do it? Leopold, as monarchs went, depended on a relatively large coalition because it was a competitive political party system that he couldn't get rid of. I don't want to be misunderstood here. He desperately wanted to get rid of it. He was very public about that. He hated being a constitutional monarch. He envied his grandfather, who had not been a constitutional monarch. He resented that his father had made concessions that reduced him to this abject state. Anyway. And explain. What, is it, what, was, he, what, was, he, what was he forced to do by the constitutional nature of the monarchy that his father was not forced to do? So he was unable to exercise arbitrary rule. He couldn't simply have people put into exile or imprisoned because he didn't like what they were doing. He couldn't arbitrarily set the tax rate as he would have liked. He had to depend on the legislature. Okay, so, very important. So Leopold, in the Belgian context, is to this day revered. Belgium under Leopold went from a kind of sleepy backwater to one of the most prosperous countries in Europe. I want now to be very clear. Belgium did not become wealthy, did not become wealthy because of the Belgian Congo. Belgium didn't have the Congo until Leopold was on his deathbed in 1908. I want that remembered because I'm going to come back and compare Leopold in the Congo to Leopold and Belgium. Because some, some people would argue that, well, sure, they did well because they exploited their colonial wealth. Yeah. But that's, this you're is saying false. It's not this true. Is not true. They did well by pursuing good policy they, that Leopold yes. put in place. So what were some of the policies he put in place? He introduced free trade, and Belgian trade increased ninefold in something like two years. Good move. Good move. 
He secured Belgium's borders, and they remained secured until World War I, by treaties that made Belgium neutral. So they lived in peace during his reign. He introduced, among Europe's first laws, banning child labor. He introduced, among Europe's first laws, protecting women's rights. He introduced male, adult, universal suffrage. So he was a wonderful man. He loved his people. He was a caring human being. And he pursued the policies that would make his people better off. It's so touching. Uh, would that that were true. He was an SOB, but he did understand how to run the society so that he would not be gotten rid of and made irrelevant. And he did that very effectively. If you were to have asked his wife whether he was a wonderful man, she would have had other things to say, particularly after he had her uh, locked up in an asylum. But that's another matter. So he had some freedom that his grandfather had. It <laughs> yes. just was in a very narrow sphere. It was very narrow. His own home. Yes. Now, Leopold had great aspirations for a colonial empire. He envied this opportunity, and he shopped around looking for a place where Belgium, where he, sorry, not Belgium, but he could have an empire. For the Belgians, one himself could have an empire. Unfortunately for him, Latin America was already taken. He looked there first. Uh, Asia was problematic. But he discovered that there was the Congo. Uh, It wasn't actually the Congo at the time, but lots of places. He bought out lots of uh, local chiefs. And he created what became known as the Congo Free State. A personal fiefdom. A personal fiefdom. Not... Part of Belgium. Not the Belgian Congo that we hear about. Not the Belgian Congo. His personal fiefdom. How did he acquire it? Uh, Well, he he purchased from a bunch of uh, chiefs at nominal prices. He built roads. The roads that he built went from where the ivory was and where the rubber was to the ports where those could be exported. No roads to anything else. Schools, not so much. (laughs) Uh, hospitals, not particularly, but roads to the port. Uh, it was observed, in fact, by a British journalist uh, that, I believe it was British, that ships were coming into the Belgian ports with uh, goods from the Congo, but they were going back empty except for guns. They weren't going back with goods with which to pay for the goods that were coming. This is what eventually led to inquiries about what was going on in Leopold's Congo. So what was going on? Leopold was, to borrow a phrase from Milton Friedman, free to choose in the Congo. He was free to choose the form of government. He was not free to choose. He inherited the government in Belgium. In the Congo, he was free to choose. He chose a small coalition political system run by, on the basis of private rewards to his cronies, never more than a couple of thousand Europeans in the force publique, never uh, a few hundred Europeans and a few thousand uh, Congolese in the force publique. They had very simple marching orders. The force publique is... This was the body that enforced the laws that uh, Leopold chose for the Congo. By the way, Leopold himself never set foot in the Congo, Uh, but he became perhaps the wealthiest person in Europe on the backs of the Congo's wealth. So what the force publique did was they had orders that they were to extract first ivory, later rubber, uh, and deliver certain quotas to Leopold. How they got it was not his concern. What else they might have extracted beyond what he wanted was not his concern. 
So what they did is, depending upon whose estimates you believe, they murdered between 3 and 10 million people in the Congo to ensure that they could extract the maximum wealth. They, they ran a monstrous society, an extraordinarily oppressive society that made them very rich, made Leopold very rich. Now, we might ask, who was the real Leopold? the Leopold of Belgium, the progressive, successful, good leader, or the leader, the Leopold of the Congo, successful, that he kept control of the Congo from when he acquired it in 1880 until his death, close to his death, became fabulously wealthy, and, and to the extent that there was something to destroy, he destroyed the society. Well, you have to conclude that the real Leopold, according to the logical political survival, the cynical view, the real any political leader, is the leader who was unencumbered as Leopold was in the Congo and who erected a political system that was one that ensured maximizing his maintenance of power and his income from that power. And that the real Leopold was not the guy in Belgium because in Belgium he inherited constraints. We can see similar patterns, by the way, in other directions. Um, Leopold is not the only person to run two countries. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek ran uh, China, mainland China, for over 20 years, and he ran Taiwan for over 20 years. In China, he ran a very corrupt government. He ran a not-so-nice government in Taiwan, although one that evolved into democracy. What happened what was the difference. In Taiwan, he acquired a society that had no resources. There was nothing, basically, no economy to speak of when the Kuomintang arrived in Taiwan after they'd been driven off the mainland by the Communist Revolution. When the resource base is near, um, now I'm talking about, we're talking about a very small society. So in a, in a large society, you could have very few resources per capita, but if you have, an, have enough heads, it adds up from the leader's point of view to lots of money. In Taiwan, there was basically nothing. So in Taiwan, he was compelled to produce policies that would lead to growth so that he could have something to extract. Yeah. And this put him on a public goods path, which was most efficiently pursued in the setting that he inherited by gradually moving in a more democratic direction. We talk about this in the book. So here's another guy. But running the opposite direction, lacking resources, so the ratio of winning coalition to resources was relatively, relatively large. He had to produce an efficient, effective society to keep himself in power. In China, very poor per capita on the mainland, but in the aggregate, tons of money, he could just run a corrupt society. We can see this. Uh, there, there are many examples through history. Simon Bolivar is an example in Latin America, ran several countries simultaneously, and ran them quite differently, depending upon the institutional constraints that were faced. The United States, by the way, as an aside, uh, was, I believe, the first country to recognize the Congo Free State as a state. Awkward. Yes, a little awkward there. I, I want to come back to that for a minute, and then I, I want to close with a few um, general questions. The band of thugs that Leopold put in place closed his eyes to their actions as long as they delivered the goods. They had a problem that was – there was competition for those slots. Uh, they didn't just kill the natives. They killed each other, presumably. Uh, 
in all of these societies that we're talking about, uh, these, excuse me, not all these societies, but in all of these uh, thugocracies, kleptocracies, where a small group of people are living at the expense of the, the masses, that small group of people is not hereditary. It's not, sometimes it's a clan, but it's not every member of the clan. How, what do you have to say about how those groups maintain, does the leader maintain the size of that group? The leader, I assume, likes competition among people to get into that group, yes. to be in the in that beneficiary class. Yes and no. Uh, so this is it's a complicated question. It's an important question. So the leaders would always like to reduce the size of the winning coalition, and they would always like to increase the pool of people who could be in it. So in that sense, they always want to increase the competitiveness yes. of being in it, but not the actual competition because... That's costly. They it's want destructive, they, they, too. You buy loyalty by people knowing that if they're in and they behave well, right. you're going to keep them in. But you do want them to know what good behavior means, which means delivering for the leader. And if they're not on good behavior, then you, you want to be sure they know there are plenty of substitutes out there. They can easily be replaced. In that sense, you want competition. That's right. And this small group of people would like to shrink the selectorate. The leader would like to increase the selectorate. The small group of people would like to shrink it because the larger the ratio of the winning coalition to the selectorate, the more the leader has to spend on those in the coalition to keep their loyalty because their loyalty is a function of how likely are they to be necessary for the next guy. So there is the greatest... Not the next guy, the alternative guy. The alternative guy. So there, exactly. So there is the greatest loyalty in rigged election autocracies. There's less loyalty in monarchy because monarchies have the characteristic, like, like rigged election autocracies, small coalition, but they have a small selectorate. Rigged elections have a big selectorate. Best things for the leaders. So the coalition members would like to increase the ratio. Now, there are two ways to increase the ratio of winning coalition to selectorate. You decrease the selectorate size, holding the winning coalition constant, or you increase the winning coalition relative to the selectorate. So leaders don't like the latter. People who make coups generally increase the ratio, and generally they do it, or I shouldn't say generally, often they do it by increasing the, the coalition size, because it's hard to get people to agree to a coup if they think they're going to be purged. Right, yeah. So, Funny how that works. Yeah. Um, so as a how, how do they keep that promise, by the way? Ah, well, so the right. credibility promise is, is Big problem. core to the theoretical argument and the logic of political survival. So these promises become credible when they are in the interest of the player after the fact. That is correct. It will. It is a sustaining yeah, a promise you're likely to keep. Not likely to keep. It would be contrary to your right. interest to violate. That's it. always a good strategy. And so. Uh, that is what has to be induced. This has some important implications about what makes countries gradually choose to become more democratic or not. So when, for example, a country faces a, a revolutionary threat, by which I don't just mean revolution, but I mean any threat to the, to the size of the winning coalition and the selection, somebody who, some group who's saying we're going to change the way the structure of government works, not just I'm going to step in, I'm going to do a better job in the existing structure, but I'm going to change the structure. When a government faces a revolutionary threat, there are two things they can do to deal with it. What produces a revolutionary threat? In order for a revolutionary threat to be meaningful, two things have to be true. 
there has to be a large enough group of people who have an incentive to want to change the form of government, and there, have to, there has to be a sufficient probability that they can succeed at doing so. What makes people have the incentive is the absence of public goods. So the, more, the bigger the stock of public goods a society has, the lower the incentive to revolt. On the other hand, the bigger the stock of public goods that a society has, the more uh, coordination goods, freedoms over the people have inherited, the easier it is for them to succeed in a revolution. So a big stock of public goods makes a revolution less attractive, but more likely to succeed. So there's a, there's a tension there. If the leader faces a threat, he can solve this threat by decreasing the incentive, that is, produce more public goods, in which case he will need to increase the size of the coalition for the coalition to be in balance, in equilibrium, with the public goods provisions that are being made, and so the society will move in a democratic direction. Or he can not increase the, uh, decrease the incentive, but decrease the probability of success by clamping down on coordination goods, on, on, on critical public goods, and shifting towards a greater private goods allocation to his cronies to ensure their loyalty, in which case he has to shift the coalition downward because otherwise he has to spend too much on private goods relative to the equilibrium conditions. So either he reduces the incentive by making it more democratic, or he reduces the risk by making it less democratic. As it turns out, that's a difficult choice, except under certain circumstances. And those certain circumstances are if the society has what economists call the natural resource curse. They have lots of oil or diamonds or whatever in the ground. Or, as co-author and I have put it, equivalently, they have foreign aid. Foreign aid is exactly the same as oil. It is a revenue source for the leader that does not require taxing labor. So it doesn't affect the average citizen's welfare that you have this. If they have these free resources, foreign aid or oil or diamonds, then it is more efficient when they face a rev credible revolutionary threat. It is more efficient for them to reduce the size of the coalition and increase private goods allocations than it is to increase the coalition and increase public goods. So you clamp down. Yeah, so foreign aid at the margin makes a country less likely to move in the democratic direction. And unfortunately, this turns out to be empirically uh, supported by overwhelming evidence. Let me, let me move to uh, two general questions. Uh, a general question, but first a clarifying comment. We, at a couple times in this conversation, you've said everybody's alike. Uh, the only thing that differs is the constraints they face. So every leader wants to maximize the probability of surviving in office, maximize the, the amount of control they have over resources, their, their own take. And the only reason they do anything gracious or kind is uh, to their people is because they're forced to by the political constraints. I'm sympathetic to the general theory. I think it's mostly true. Uh, but I want you to comment on the what we would call the question of who competes for the opportunity to be in this role. Now, it's true that ex post, after the fact, the people we see in these positions seem to act in ways that are consistent with, with your theory. And I, and I want to add that the book is more than just these fascinating uh, vignettes and, and case studies. There's also some 
some very sophisticated statistical evidence that tries to measure the impact of these coalition issue measures and, and the factors that you've identified. But I, I don't – I'd like to hear whether you want to make the claim that it's that there's a randomness there. My perception is that uh, these opportunities for leadership attract a certain kind of person uh, and that many people find those opportunities unattractive. And as a result, although there is a consistency across uh, leaders about their willingness to stay in office and do whatever it takes, a ruthlessness, uh, there are other, people's who, other people who say, that's not a competition I'd like to win, and they bow out. Correct or not correct? Partially correct. Am I being too uh, uncynical there? No, partially correct. The, you, you began the question with a summary statement that was not quite accurate of what the theory claims were my view. I don't believe everybody is alike. And the theory doesn't claim that everybody is alike. It doesn't claim that in two important respects. First of all, the theory recognizes that there are some people who are not willing to pay the personal price for coming to political power. And they don't come to political power, so they are uh, alleviated of the need of putting up with this very unpleasant behavior on their own part. Second, the theory recognizes, I touched a little bit on this, the theory recognizes that with the discretionary part of the pot of money that leaders have, some, like Lee Kuan Yew, my favorite example, will choose to use the discretion to pursue public policies, pet public policies, in his case, good ideas. Uh, Mao also, I doubt very much, had a Swiss bank account. He pursued what he thought were good public policy ideas. They turned out to be disasters. Khrushchev pursued what he thought were his new economic ideas. They turned out to be a disaster. But many of these guys will try to do good with the discretionary component. They are alike in that with, they have to meet the demand of the coalition, and that demand is going to depend on its size. And others with their discretionary money are happy to sock it away in a Swiss bank account or whatever. You mentioned a Hall of Fame before. Actually, the book has a section that talks about the Hall of Fame of Leaders. That's the H-A-U-L uh, of Fame. Uh, Marcos and uh, Mobutu are the world champions in stealing. Um, they didn't, apparently were not inclined to put the money at their discretion to public use. Now, so they're not all alike. And there is a strong selection effect in who becomes a leader. In order to be a leader, if you are not driven by the sorts of incentives that I've talked about, you will fail. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was driven... Glad you mentioned him. Uh, ...driven by the quest for power. Bill Clinton was driven by the quest for power. These folks may do good things when they are in office, or they may not, matter of taste. But that does not alter they are driven to hold power, and therefore they will be constrained by the institutions under which they operate to do those things that keep them in power. I'll give you a, a little example. I often have people ask me about term limits and what do term limits do in this context. And term limits are one of the things that we talk about in the theory. Uh, term limits have a very interesting effect. 
Uh, I've argued with Milton Friedman about term limits. I've tried to persuade Milton that it's a bad idea. Seems attractive on the surface uh, at a certain level. It seems to constrain the ability to create a, a, a sustained flow of goodies to yourself yeah, as a politician. It, it, quite the contrary. So, why? So here's the way term limits work in the theory and I believe in the real world. And I'll give some concrete examples. When you are term limited, you reach some point in your term in office, the last term in office, where you are far enough into the term that the cost of impeachment, for example, the cost of mounting an effort to depose the leader is not worth it because they're not going to be there long enough. Anyway, they're already... Wait wait them out. Prior to reaching that moment, the leader has to try extra hard, has to do even better. If it's a small coalition system, has to do better at rewarding the cronies. If it's a large coalition democratic system, has to do better in public policy because the cost of getting rid of them is not yet too high and everybody knows they're not going to be able to deliver the private benefits indefinitely, so they have to try even harder. That's good. Once they cross that moment at which the cost of removing them is higher than the benefit of removing them, they are liberated to do whatever they please. Within the risks of the law and being caught. Well, within the risks of being punished. So, for example, presidents give out many, 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 many more pardons in their last two years in office than in their earlier six years. And as it turns out, there is evidence that, for example, President Clinton and others before him not to be too harsh about it, sold pardons. And you would predict that in the in the last two years of the Bush administration, you will see something similar. You will see something similar. It may not be with pardons, but you will see something that will look corrupt. John Adams lived, his second president of the United States, lived his life proud of his reputation for the highest levels of integrity. After he lost the election of 1800, which he did not expect to lose, after he learned that he had lost the election, so that was between November of 1800 and March of 1801, when Thomas Jefferson would be inaugurated, so the term limit for him was he was the next president was going to be sworn in. We didn't otherwise have limits. John Adams, for the first time in his life, appointed his friends, his buddies, and his relatives, other than his son who was a well-qualified fellow, but relatives without qualification to government offices to give them sinecures, to give them patronage. He, he did exactly what this theory says you should expect. He was completely unencumbered by constraints. The Romans had understood this problem. Roman consuls served for a year Roman variety of office, Roman offices were for a year. The Romans passed laws that made it possible after the year was up to prosecute for behavior during the year. They previously didn't have those laws because they discovered that as you got close to the end of the year, these guys began to rob the palace blind. So what term limits do is they, once you pass a certain moment, they free the leader to be corrupt. So I guess the, the counter-argument would be on, on behalf of Milton and others who, who would give the other argument would be that true, yes, uh, term limits remove the constraint of re-election to, that, that constrains p- 
people to behave uh, uh, well, but maybe it'll be a short enough term they won't fully learn the ropes of how to um, steal from their uh, enemies and give to their friends. I am sure, naive, perhaps. I am sure, but it's Milton, an empirical question. I, I'm, both, I'm sure Milton would not make that argument, and the reason I'm sure that Milton would You've not make him. the argument is because theories based on the assumption that people don't figure out their own self-interest <laughs> are problematic. Well, but learning takes time. Uh, it's not. They a, have their whole yep. term to reflect on what yeah. they will do in those. <laughs> It's this not is, as if they wake up one day and say, oh, my God, I, I am term limited. Now, John Adams woke up one day and yeah, I understand. because he lost the election. But conditional on being reelected, they know going in. But there is on-the-job training. You know, that's... Yes, yes. Uh, that's, they learn which are the vehicles they can use for corruption. Might take them a while. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Sorry, uh, I'm very cynical about this. No, I, I, and I'm sympathetic to it. Um, let me close with a question uh, in a different realm. We've spent a lot of time talking about how the world is, uh, what's called uh, positive political economy. Uh, this, these theories we've talked about, the empirical evidence, they may not be cheering, they may not be, uh, it may be depressing to, to our listeners, uh, but I'd like you to talk about what your theory implies for a voter. And, a, and a, or an activist or a citizen. So we talked, for example, about foreign aid. You said, look, this is the way it is. Uh, the U.S. and other nations pursue foreign aid to enhance their own self-interest, and by their own self-interest, it's the self-interest of the leaders. Of course, they have to keep their coalition, winning coalition, happy. So it's not just the leader necessarily, but but that winning coalition. Who and are voters. Who are voters in a in democracy, which, which is a good thing, because that constrains the leader in a, in, a, in a more decisive way. But is there any lesson here for, uh, for us as voters beyond the, the, the somewhat narrow, but perhaps important one, that it is at a minimum important not to justify certain types of foreign aid with the blather and high-sounding rhetoric that is used to cover what is going on, that we should, at least should hope for transparency here. And is there anything more than that? Can, can, is yes. there anything? Are we just stuck with no. this system? No, there, what would you recommend? So what, what this view of the world says is that to change it, you can't just engage in wishful thinking, but you have to think about what will make it incentive compatible for leaders to do things differently. So foreign aid. There are a lot of people who would like to help the poor, starving people in this country and in other parts of the world. There aren't very many starving people in this country, but people starving elsewhere in the world. huge portion of the world is living under less, on less than a dollar or two dollars a $2 day. $2 a day, yes. Giving assistance directly to the recipient the person who is going to use it, is a much better way. Now, governments have erected barriers to doing that. So when you give money to uh, Oxfam or CARE or whatever, they have to pay a very high premium to offload goods from the ships that pull into the ports of Sri Lanka or of uh, African countries or whatever because the governments see this as a revenue source. But if you it's, a it's a competitive 
uh, it's yes. competitive yes. alternative to foreign aid, so they don't want to make it too easy. Right. Exactly. Surprisingly, they allow it at all, yes. actually. So, uh, some are better about it than others. You want to do homework and not just make yourself feel good, but actually do good by looking around at where there there is the least burden. People make the mistake with foreign with 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 charitable giving of looking at what percentage of the charitable dollars go to administrative costs in the charity. Well, that's, that's a useful piece of information. But the more useful piece of information is what percentage of this goes towards buying government rights elsewhere. There's the right to offload and so forth. So it's typically 90 to 95% of the money. So people could do better on foreign aid by giving it directly and giving it directly to the person who's going to consume it who will want to hide it from the government, which is problematic. It's very hard to do well. As a government, if, if we as voters said that we insist that our government not forgive loans and not give aid unless the leaders of the countries receiving it demonstrate that they're willing to put their hold on power at risk in exchange for this money, that this money is to benefit their society, then we shouldn't give it. How would we get them to demonstrate that? We could insist as voters that our government require an external, independent, fully published in digestible form audit of the books of the recipient country. We could require that, okay, we will, we will give an amnesty to anybody who was stolen in the previous year. But having done this audit, we will do it every year. If we find theft, the people who were, the parts of the government that were engaged will be prosecuted. We will not give aid to governments that will not allow the transparency of the upfront of the audit of their books. Now, most governments will say, no, it's an intrusion on their sovereignty. They are right. And that's fine. It's our money. Yeah. It's not their money. It's our money. The idea that it's trickling down to poor people is a very nice thought. It, it, to the extent that it gets down to them at all, it really is a trickle, and it does a lot more harm to poor people than it does good. I mean, it's a remarkably naive belief to believe, one, that these leaders would give the money to the people that we actually, seems many of us care about, but more importantly, empirically, there's no evidence that they do it. No. It's this remarkable thing yeah. that people continue to clamor for aid to go to despotic governments rather than to the people that we're trying to help. And it's, continue to argue that the problem is it's not enough money. Which, as it turns out, the despots agree with. They would like, <laughs> they would like more. Yeah. Uh, we, should, we should be trying to pressure, as voters, to pressure our government, to pressure the World Bank, to make the governance structure of recipient countries part of their routine evaluation agenda. Until recently, they were by charter prohibited from even mentioning the politics of the recipient government. Now they have a little bit more latitude, but not much. We should be insisting on that if that's what we care about. Unfortunately, as it turns out, now to be cynical again, voters talk a good line about wanting to do good in the world, but when they are faced with the hard choice between something that's good for other people at their expense, or good for themselves at other people's expense, they tend to choose the latter. For instance, if you ask voters, are you in favor of promoting democracy around the world? I'm sure just about everybody will say yes. If you step back and ask the hard question, would you support promoting democracy elsewhere if that means that the government that becomes democratic is because its citizens don't like what the United States likes, it adopts policies that are abhorrent to American 
citizens' interests? Do you prefer that they become democratic? I suspect the answer would be no. I suspect very few Americans are enthusiastic about the democratically elected government of Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. The truth is there is a difficult choice to be made between promoting the freedom of other people and promoting your own freedom. The job of the leaders of democratic countries like the United States is to achieve policy ends desired by American voters, not by voters in Palestine, not by voters in Iraq or any place else. Their job is to do what is good for American voters. And if they don't, they get kicked out of office. If the voter really wants to bear the costs in the short term of unpleasant democratic policy, democratically adopted policies elsewhere for the long-term benefits of having other countries be democratic, and they are long-term benefits, then they should pressure their political leaders to encourage democracy when it is in the immediate term bad for the Americans. Well, sorry, that's not going to happen. But it's not, is, it, is it clear that the, the fact that, that Hamas is elected is bad for America compared to what was before? I mean, what's the... Yeah, it is. It is it, I think it is clear. Um, it's clear because it is easier for Hamas to adopt hardline policies and refuse to negotiate, refuse to seek a solution, and to press its line than it was for the uh, Yasser Arafat Fatah government, exactly because the Hamas government can claim they are doing what the people want. Now, as it turns out, they were almost certainly elected because of the public goods that they provide, as opposed to their policy towards Israel. But we have no way to know that. They will not make that distinction. So at the margin, yeah, it is, it is worse unless we then face two questions. Do they think they can get reelected with their policy towards Israel? And do they care whether they can get reelected? That is, do they intend to have another election? <laughs> yeah. We don't know. Uh, one of the lessons of this conversation for me uh, is to reinforce my um, strong belief in the value of a constitution, something that in the United States uh, has, in my belief, been eroded over time. But presumably the founders while they did not know the theory in your book, uh, did understand the forces uh, and constraints that real human beings live under and viewed the Constitution as a way of constraining uh, any kleptocratic uh, thuggery among America's leaders. And I think we would do well to um, remember that. James Madison was extremely close to this theory. <laughs> extremely <laughs> close. Uh, he, he, he understood a lot. Uh, I don't uh, I put a lot of value on the insights that our founding fathers had. I put less value on constitution per se than you do. The Soviet Union had a magnificent constitution. China has a pretty good constitution, yeah, too. Fair enough. just has this little clause about all of these freedoms and so forth, except in national emergency. Yeah. They always seem to have a national emergency. Uh, the leaders get to decide that. So rule of law, I view as endogenous, not as imposed. Um, it, For sure. it, it is a product of conditions. 
it is revolutionary conditions that provide the great opportunity to change governments. And um, we should, in that regard, strive where the threat of revolution is great to make sure that the revolution moves in the direction of producing a government that is conducive to our interests as well as the interests of its citizens where that is possible. And that's a hard thing to do. Well, Bruce, it's been an extraordinarily interesting conversation. I thank you for your time. For more podcasts, go to econtalk.org, where you will also find links to additional websites and readings related to this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you.